Chapters number 61 and 62 of History of Philosophy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Katharina Glovala. History of Philosophy by William Turner. Chapter 61. Panphenomenalism, Hume. So far, the history of philosophy of the 18th century has been the story of the empirical attempt to solve the Cartesian problem by reducing mind to matter, and of the idealistic attempt to solve the same problem by reducing matter to mind. There remains one more phase of 18th century speculation, namely, Hume's answer to the Cartesian problem if indeed it may be called an answer, since it is rather a denial of the reason for proposing such a problem at all. For, instead of trying to untie what may be called the Gordian knot of post-Cartesian speculation, Hume cut the knot by denying the substantial existence of mind and matter. Hume Life David Hume was born at Edinburgh in 1711. After an unsuccessful attempt to fit himself for the profession of law, he decided to take up the study of philosophy and literature. During the years 1734 to 1737, which he spent in France, he wrote his treatise on human nature. The work, he says, quote, fell dead-born from the press without reaching such distinction as even to excite a murmur among the zealots. End of quote. Later, he recast the first book of the treatise into his Enquiry Concerning Human Understanding, the second book into his Dissertation on the Passions, and the third into his Enquiry Concerning the Principles of Morals. His Essays, Moral, Political and Literary, which were published at Edinburgh in 1742, met a favorable reception. In 1747, he accompanied a military embassy to the courts of Vienna and Turin, and again, in 1763, he accompanied the English ambassador to the court of Versailles, where he remained until 1766. During the interval, he had held the office of Keeper of the Advocates' Library at Edinburgh, and had begun the publication of his History of England. In 1767, he was made Under Secretary of State in the Foreign Office. In 1769, he returned to Edinburgh and died there in 1776. Sources In addition to the works already mentioned, Hume wrote A Natural History of Religion and Dialogues Concerning Natural Religion. The standard edition of Hume's philosophical works is that of Green and Gross, four volumes, London, 1874, reprinted 1889-1890. to The student may be referred to Huxley's Hume, Englishman of Letters series, 1879, to Knight's Hume, Blackwood's Philosophical Classics, 1886, and to the introduction to Green and Gross's edition of Hume's works. Doctrines Starting point Hume's starting point is that of the empiricist, and his conception of the method of philosophical procedure is that of the critical philosopher. In the introduction to the treatise on human nature, he writes, quote, To me it seems evident that, the essence of the mind being equally unknown to us with that of external bodies, 
it must be equally impossible to form any notion of its powers and qualities otherwise than from careful and exact experiments. To certain we cannot go beyond experience. End of quote. The critical element appears when, in this same introduction and in the opening paragraphs of the Inquiry Concerning Human Understanding, he reduces all philosophy to the study of human nature, basing the study of human nature on the observation of mental phenomena and, quote, an exact analysis of the powers and capacity, end of quote, of the mind. Analysis of mind. According to Hume, the mind is its contents. His analysis of the mind is, therefore, merely an inventory of the contents of the mind, or of perceptions. In Hume's philosophy, perception is synonymous with state of consciousness, the term being equivalent to the Cartesian thought and to the idea of Locke and Berkeley. Hume divides perceptions into two classes, impressions, which are defined as the more lively perceptions experienced when we hear, see, will, love, etc. Perceptions, therefore, include passions and emotions as well as sensations, and ideas or thoughts, which are faint images of impressions. As to the innateness of impressions and ideas, Hume says that, if by innate we mean contemporary with our birth, the dispute seems to be frivolous. But if by innate we understand what is original or copied from no preceding perception, then we may assert that all our impressions are innate and our ideas not innate. When, therefore, Hume speaks of memory, imagination, ideas of relation, abstract ideas, etc., he's speaking of mental faculties and states which are ultimately reducible to sense faculties and to the impressions of the senses. What, then, are the objects of our impressions? Hume answers that we do not perceive substance nor qualities, but only our own subjective states. Quote, "'Tis not our body we perceive when we regard our limbs and members, but certain impressions which enter by the senses." End of quote. The last words seem to indicate a belief in an external cause of our impressions, and, indeed, Hume is not at all consistent in his subjectivism, for he admits, in at least one passage, the possibility of our impressions either arising from the object or being produced by the creative power of the mind, or being derived from the author of our being. The denial of the substantiality of the mind is Hume's most distinctive contribution to psychology. It is, he says, successive perceptions only that constitute the mind. The substantiality of the ego is a delusion. What we call mind is simply, quote, a heap or collection of different perceptions united together by certain relations and supposed, though falsely, to be endowed with simplicity and identity. End of quote. Thus did Hume complete the work of empiricism. Locke reasoned away everything except the primary qualities of bodies and the unknown substratum, substance, in which they adhere. Berkeley showed that even the substance and primary qualities of bodies might be reasoned away, and now Hume applies the same solvent to the substance of mind itself, and leaves nothing but phenomena. If the substantial nature of the ego is a delusion, immortality is not a datum of reason. We are not surprised, therefore, to find that in the essay On the Immortality of the Soul, Hume, after examining the arguments in favor of immortality, which arguments he divides into metaphysical, moral, and physical, concludes that, 
Quote, it is the gospel, and the gospel alone, that has brought life and immortality to light. End of quote. Analysis of causation. Quite in keeping with Hume's denial of substance is his analysis of causation into a succession of phenomena. All our ideas, he teaches, are connected either by resemblance, continuity in time, continuity in space, or causality. Causality, then, is merely a relation between our ideas. But is it an a priori relation? And if not, whence and how does it arise? The first of these questions Hume answers in the negative. He formulates the principle of causality as follows. Whatever event has a beginning must have a cause. Footnote. C.F. Huxley's Hume, page 120. In Hume's treatise on human nature, page 381, occurs the form, whatever has a beginning has also a cause of existence. End of footnote. He maintains that, quote, the knowledge of this relation, causality, is not in any instance attained by reasonings a priori, but arises entirely from experience, when we find that any particular objects are constantly conjoined with each other. All distinct ideas are separable from each other, and as the ideas of cause and effect are evidently distinct, it will be easy for us to conceive any object as non-existent this moment and existent the next, without conjoining to it the distinct idea of a cause or producing principle. End of quote. The argument, as Huxley remarks, quote, is of the circular sort, for the major premise that all distinct ideas are separable in thought assumes the question at issue. End of quote. The axiom of causality, therefore, comes from experience. But Hume observes, One instance does not constitute sufficient experimental evidence of the causal connection of two phenomena. When, however, quote, one particular series of events has always, in all instances, been conjoined with another, we make no longer any scruple in foretelling one on the appearance of the other. We then call the one cause and the other effect. We suppose that there is some connection between them, some power in the one, by virtue of which it infallibly produces the other. But there is nothing in a number of instances different from every single instance which is supposed to be exactly similar, except only that after a repetition of similar instances the mind is carried by habit upon the appearance of one event to expect its usual attendant and to believe that it will exist. End of quote. There is, therefore, no real dependence of effect on cause, no ontological nexus, but merely a psychological one, an expectation arising from habit or custom. Hume indeed admits that, in addition to the notion of sequence of phenomena, there is in our concept of causality the idea of something resident in the cause, a power, force or energy, which produces the effect. When, however, he comes to analyze this notion of power, he finds it to be merely a projection of the subjective feeling of effort into the phenomenon, which is the invariable antecedent. Quote, no animal can put external bodies in motion without the sentiment of anesis, or endeavor, and every animal has a sentiment or feeling from the stroke or blow of an external object that is in motion. We consider only the constant experienced conjunction of the events, and as we feel the customary connection between the ideas, we transfer that feeling to the objects. End of quote. From the empirical viewpoint, 
Hume's analysis of the principle of causality is thorough. If there is in the mind no power superior to sensation and reflection, no faculty by which we are enabled to abstract from the contingent data of sense the necessary elements of intellectual thought, then all the axioms of science, the axioms of causality included, are mere associations of sense impressions. But the empirical standpoint is erroneous. In this, as in other instances, empiricism stops where the real problem of philosophy begins, as is evident from the fact that, while Hume succeeds in showing that one event is connected with another in our past experience, neither he nor any other empiricist has shown why we are entitled to expect that events which have been connected in the past will be connected in the future. Empiricism can show a connectio facti, but it cannot show a connectio juris between antecedent and consequent, between cause and effect. Ethics Hume's ethical system is a development of the fundamental doctrine of the English ethical schools of the 18th century. He restricts the role of reason as a moral criterion and develops the doctrine that moral distinctions are determined by our sense of the agreeable and the disagreeable. Abstract distinctions, mere rational intuitions or inferences, leave us perfectly indifferent as to action so long as they fail to acquire an emotional value through some relation to the passions and ultimately to the feeling of the agreeableness or disagreeableness of the action to be performed. Quote, Nothing but a sentiment can induce us to give the preference to the beneficial and useful tendencies over pernicious ones. This sentiment is, in short, nothing but sympathy. End of quote. The following is the ultimate analysis of moral value. Quote, no man is absolutely indifferent to the happiness and misery of others. The first has a natural tendency to give pleasure, the second pain. This everyone may find in himself. It is not probable that these principles can be resolved into principles more simple and universal, whatever attempts may be made to that purpose. End of quote. Historical position. Hume's philosophy is summed up in the words panphenomenalism and skepticism. He reduced mind as well as matter to mere phenomena and denied the ontological nexus between cause and effect. He maintained that there is no permanent, immutable element in the world of our experience, and that there is no valid principle which can justify metaphysical speculation concerning the world beyond our experience. It was this total subversion of the necessary and universal that awoke Kant from his dogmatic slumber, and gave rise in Scotland to the movement in favor of the philosophy of common sense. It will be necessary, before entering on the study of these reactions against Hume, to give a brief sketch of what is known as the German Illumination, the transition from Leibniz to Kant. Chapter 62 German Illumination, Transition to Kant Philosophy of Law During the 17th century, Samuel von Pufendorf, 1632-1694, who aimed at mediating between Grotius and Hobbes, and Christian Thomasius, 1655-1728, who is considered the first of the German Illuminati, appeared as representatives of a new philosophy of law. They investigated the foundations of natural right and formulated theories in accordance with the changed political conditions of Europe. Popularizers It was the aim of many of the philosophical writers of the 17th and 18th century to free philosophy from the technical difficulties which rendered it inaccessible to the generality of readers and in this way to reach the people, 
as the French authors of the Encyclopedia were doing. Walter von Schirnhausen, 1651-1708, Johann Nicolas Tetens, 1736-1805, and Moses Mendelssohn, 1729-1786, represented different phases of this movement in different departments of thought, physical science, mental science, and religious philosophy. To the same period belongs the so-called pietistic movement, which aimed at counteracting the rationalistic tendencies by quickening religious feeling. During the storm and stress movement of the last decades of the 18th century, when rationalism was at its height, Gotthold Ephraim Lessing, 1729-1781, the philosopher-poet, expounded a system of religio-philosophical thought which may be said to be a system of natural religion based partly on the pantheism of Spinoza's Ethica and partly on the theism of Leibniz's Theodice. To the same period belongs Johann Gottfried von Herder, 1744-1803, whose Ideen zur Philosophie der Geschichte der Menschheit marks an epoch in the history of the philosophy of history. In this work, Herder interprets history from the point of view of the organic unity of the human race. Christian von Wolff, 1679-1754, is of special importance on account of the influence which he exercised on Kant's early training. He attempted to reduce Leibniz's philosophy to a systematic form, but in doing so, he modified the essential tenets of his predecessor, restricting the doctrine of pre-established harmony to the explanation of the relations of soul and body, and so changing the doctrine of the dualism of the monad as practically to restore the Cartesian antithesis of mind and matter. He devoted special attention to philosophic method. Indeed, he sometimes carried method to the extent of formalism. Wolf is the author of the well-known division of metaphysics into ontology, cosmology, psychology, and rational theology. Retrospect The period from Descartes to Hume was dominated by the influence of Cartesian thought and more particularly by the doctrine of the antithesis of mind and matter. It was the attempt to solve the problem of this antithesis that gave rise to the pantheistic monism of Spinoza, to the materialistic monism of the thoroughgoing empiricists, to the idealistic monism of Berkeley, to the partially idealistic monadism of Leibniz, and to the panphenomenalism of Hume, which, most astounding solution of all, solves the problem of the antithesis by denying the substantial nature of both mind and matter. Here the first act ends. Kant next appears, and appalled at the sight of the ruin which Hume has wrought, fearing for the spirituality of the soul, the freedom of the will, the existence of God, and the obligation of the moral law, opens a new scene by proposing once more the question, what are the conditions of knowledge, and prepares the way for the philosophy of the 19th century by his attempt at constructive synthesis on the basis of moral consciousness. We cannot fail to remark also in the development of philosophy from Descartes to Kant a struggle between the purely scientific view and the aesthetic religious view of the world. Wherever empiricism held full sway, there the scientific view prevailed, and enlightenment, as it was called, was sought, rather than a deeper sense of the aesthetic and spiritual significance of things. Wherever, on the contrary, the idealistic movement prevailed, there greater value was attached to the spiritual and aesthetic solution 
than to the scientific solution of the problems of philosophy. But in spite of idealistic reactions, the principles of deism continued to pervade English thought, the illumination continued to flourish in France and Germany, and empiricism culminated in the philosophy of Hume, which expresses the last and most violent form of antagonism between the scientific and the religious aesthetic view of life. It was left for Kant to undo the work of the Illuminati and of Hume, and to lay the foundation for the constructive systems which were to give to the religious and aesthetic interest of human life a place beside the merely scientific elements of thought in a complete synthesis of philosophical knowledge. Finally, we must observe in the 18th century a gradual increase in the importance attached to the study of man in his social and political relations, and the growth and development of the idea of an antithesis between the individual and the state. But while Rousseau was giving expression to the doctrine of individualism in its most extreme form, Herder, by his doctrine of the organic union of the human race, was preparing the way for the political philosophy of the 19th century. For the new century was to discard the notion of antithesis between the individual and the state, and, adopting an organic instead of a mechanical concept of society, was to substitute for the individualism of the 18th century a collectivism, which not only the great speculative systems such as Hegel's, but all the other important movements of the 19th century, the evolution hypothesis, the rise of Romanticism in literature, the Oxford movement, and the great industrial and commercial centralization of recent years, were to exemplify and confirm in theory or in practice. End of chapter 61 and 62